grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the movies that my family likes to watch every Christmas time is the movie Elf. And the movie is portrayed by the main actor, Will Ferrell, who is an elf that is sent from the North Pole to go explore the world. And as he begins to explore the world around him, he comes into contact with all these Christmas images and traditions that Americans have. And one of them is he discovers there's another Santa. He comes into one of these shopping stores where the Santa's sitting and greeting all the children, and he yells out, you sit on a throne of lies. We were watching the Christmas parade in Casey, and one of the things I noticed in the Christmas parade was, as we were going along, was there was no Santa. I kept seeing Grinches. In fact, I think I counted about six Grinches until finally at the very end was finally the Santa. And as I thought about those six Grinches and then finally the real Santa, I thought, you know, those Grinches are on to something. Because there's something in the Grinch that's probably more honest than anything that I saw in Santa. There's something about the Grinches that expresses a truth that's in each one of us. The idea that inside of us is something that isn't all too pretty. Something that doesn't rejoice at Christmas time. Something that wants to, in fact, destroy Christmas joy. In the story of King Nebuchadnezzar, we've come to chapter 4, where you discover that in the king there is something that's not too pretty. Despite all the outward show of his praising the Lord and honoring the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, after seeing all of these miracles and in fact putting a decree out to all the land that this God is to be honored, there is something he's hiding. It's connected to these three men in the fiery furnace, which leads into this song of praise that he issues. He sends forth a proclamation. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. Yes, even the king of Babylon is here praising the most high God of the Jewish people. But as the story unfolds, you find the praise is shallow. It's only skin deep. He refers back to this God who Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego trusted, he says. They trusted in him and they set aside the king's own command and they yielded up their bodies. He sees in those three men that ability not just to praise God outwardly, but to give their whole selves, risk their very lives for the sake of what they believe. Is Nebuchadnezzar willing to lay the same sacrifice on the line? Is he really serious about the God he's praising? 
It doesn't take very long before all of this confidence in this God that could do such great things shrivels away when he has another bad dream. It's interesting that in Daniel 4, you have one of these, probably the only time in all of the Bible where the emperor of the world is narrating the scriptures. It comes in the first person where he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. He delivers it in the first person here, the inspired scriptures recording the thoughts of the king. And I would say it's meant to help us see that behind all of the glory and glitter and gold of the power of the Babylonian Empire, which we'll talk about, is a weak and scared man. He has this dream and he says, it made me afraid. And as I thought about it on my bed, I was alarmed. And so the king gathers his wise men, all of his learned magicians, enchanters, and astrologers come in, just like in the earlier story, and again he asks them to interpret his dream. Of course, like the other time, nobody could do it. So for all the wisdom in Babylon, no one is wise enough to again resolve the king's dilemma, resolve the unresolved fears that are in the king. There is an unresolved fear in the king that can't be put away with any of the religious practices that his faith would seek. Instead, he turns to the only one that can help him, Daniel. And at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom the spirit of the holy God dwells. And I told him the dream. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar's faith is a mingling of a lot of different things. So he brings in this wise man, Daniel, whose God he's seen deliver his people from fire, and who he's praised and honored in front of the whole nation. And now he turns to that same God and that same servant. And he wants to note here that it's the one he renamed. The Daniel that he transformed, as he sees it, into his servant, into his religion, into his belief. Yes, the name Daniel is the Hebrew name, a name which means God is my judge. And the king changed his name to Belteshazzar, a name which means Bel protects the king. So from God is my judge, he thinks he's transformed Daniel into a servant of Bel. And Bel is another name for the patron god of Babylon, Marduk, the chief god of all of the Babylonia and all of its empire. So he believes that through Daniel, his own gods will protect him. His praise is shallow because it's a form of syncretism. And syncretism is when you take differing religions, differing beliefs, even contradictory truths, and you weave them together and try to meld them into one thing. 
So he's taking all these different gods, all these different religions, and mixing them together. And while at first you think he's headed in the right direction, we see it's all a facade. The word facade comes from the French, which means to put up a front. It reminds me of those old Western films where they would construct a Western town right in the middle of wherever. And if you were to go and actually visit that town and actually watch the filming, you'd see the buildings are just a front. That's all there are to. They're just a prop. And when you try to look around, you look behind them, you see there's not really a building there. There's not really a city. It's all a facade. Daniel reveals what's behind the facade. And at first he hesitates. He hesitates because he knows that the interpretation of the dream is going to utterly doom the king. He even says, I wish it were your enemies I was speaking this about. But he instead goes ahead and interprets the dream. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar had pictured a tree, a great cosmic tree. And it was in the midst of the earth and its height was great up to the skies and the heavens. And the tree grew and it became strong and its top reached the highest height. And it was visible to the end of the, old, the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit was abundant, and it provided food for all. For the beasts of the field that sheltered under it, for the birds of the air that rested in its branches. And Daniel tells to the king, O king, this dream is about you. You are the tree. You are the great tree which has become so large and so strong that all the world can see it. Great Babylon, in all of its glory. Your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens, your dominion to the end of the earth. All the people of the earth are dependent on you, he says. But there's a twist in the dream that troubles Nebuchadnezzar. A voice comes from above, a watcher. It's called a heavenly being that watches over the kings of the earth is sent to intervene. And he chops down the tree. And the tree falls. And the tree becomes a piece of refuse on the ground that the beasts walk on and the birds leave behind. And he says, this means that you will be chopped down, O king, and you will become mad. He says, you'll become like a beast of the field that rests outside in the wilderness and has no home and no people. The dew of the heaven will grow heavy on you. Your beard will grow out. Your nails will grow long. And you'll become like a wild animal. He says, listen to me, O king. Listen to me and let my advice be good for you. Break off your sins and practice what is right. Break off your iniquity and show mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a return to your prosperity. Despite all of this, despite all that Nebuchadnezzar has been through and seeing what the God of Daniel can do, he doesn't really act on it. 
And the story goes right from the end of Daniel's interpretation and then says, dot, dot, dot. So 12 months later, the king was walking on his roof. 12 months later, we don't know what happens in between, but here's the king walking around on his roof and he's looking out over his kingdom and he's taking it all in. Now, if you've done any research on the kingdom of Babylon, you know that it is a magnificent sight. They've reconstructed one of the gates called the Ishtar Gate. And it's painted with a great blue lapis color with golden symbol of dragons and bulls. The people approaching the city would see this great blue gate leading the way. And as they proceeded into the city, then they would see on their right the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the world that King Nebuchadnezzar created because he married a Persian queen and she was homesick. So he recreated the mountains of her homeland in the form of a great temple. A little further down the road, you would see the temple itself, the ziggurat, which is a pyramid-shaped temple that reaches up to the heavens where they worship Marduk. Yes, you would see all these things as Nebuchadnezzar did, looking out over his kingdom and admiring all of the glory and power that are his. You see, the king doesn't get it. Twelve months have gone by, and he's just waited and done nothing. What this is teaching us is that in every one of us is this thinly veiled facade. From Nebuchadnezzar's last word there, as he admires the glory of my majesty, and while the words were still in his mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, the kingdom has departed from you. And from there he was driven mad, and he went out into the wilderness to live on his own in the wild, to eat grass like an ox. And God said, seven periods of time shall pass over until you will finally know that the Most High God is King. In each one of us, there is this thinly veiled facade. It reminds me of the story of Beauty and the Beast. At the beginning of Beauty and the Beast is a prince, and he's glorious, he's powerful, he's attractive. He has everything he could possibly imagine. And an old woman comes to his door knocking. And she offers him a rose. He laughs at the old hag and sends her away empty-handed. Well, behind that old woman was a beautiful enchantress. And she reveals herself and she curses him for rejecting her merely on her outward looks. And he becomes a beast. You see, so many times in life, we are only looking at the outside. We're ignoring the beast within. On the sixth day of creation, God created two types of animals. Both on the sixth day. You know what the two types of animal were? 
The one was the land animals. The other was man. So what separates man from the beast? We both have physical bodies. We both are made of flesh. We're both limited. We eat, we drink, we have offspring. What separates man from beast? In each one of us, there's the instinct of a natural animal desire. Sin has driven us toward it to live in the moment, to only look at the short term, to let our emotions rule us and rule the day. Or we simply hide our emotions, we veil them, we put on a front. We make things look like they're okay. We make it appear to others that we got things under control, only to know that behind it are a few props that you could easily knock down. And then we're struck with that bad dream, the vision, the fear of what the future is going to be. Our unresolved fears that we're keeping inside, we're suppressing them. We suppress anger. We suppress pride, jealousy. And as we keep suppressing all of that inside, we become more tightly wound until it drives us mad. The things we keep in our head and in our heart can drive us to madness and they can drive us to the animal side of life. They can drive us to idolatry. Which is why Paul compares the same thing when he says that man has suppressed the truth in a lie. And they've turned the image of the glorious God into an image like a four-footed animal. He's talking about our sins. He's saying that we were created to be different than the animals. We were created in the image of God. People who can, are capable of great goodness, great beauty, great righteousness... But in our fallen state, we become more like the beasts of the field. Pride cometh before the fall. So this is a message, first of all, for all nations. God wants, to know that all, wants all nations to know that he's the one that brings us up and he's the one that cuts us down. That he determines the kings, emperors, queens, and rulers of this world. He allows them to be appointed, and he chooses when they're taken down. He allows them to succeed, and he allows them to be driven mad. How many rulers have been driven to madness simply based on the stress and power that they wield? Like Nero, who burnt down Rome and blamed it on the Christians while he was playing his fiddle. Or Hitler, who murdered millions. Jesus warns that when you drive out a demon, if you leave the home empty, seven more stronger than the first will come in and they'll cause total havoc. It was no small thing that King Nebuchadnezzar idled away 12 months while this warning was resting on his kingdom. But it's not just a message for the nations, it's a message for the Israelites. Remember who Daniel's talking to. He's not writing to the Babylonians, he's writing to his people. 
the Israelites needed to remember that they're susceptible to the same insanity. What got them to Babylon in the first place? They were praising God. They were honoring his name. They knew all of the stories more than anybody else. But they had let their faith become a mixture of syncretism, of worship of the true God and worship of other gods, and it mingled together in a sinful mess. And when circumstances and visions that troubled them came upon them, they didn't know what to do. So God would send prophets like Daniel, who would also warn them and say, you're going to be cut down. This is exactly the message that John the Baptist brought to the Pharisees and said, the axe is already laid to the root. He's thinking of this story and how God is, cuts down those who are filled with pride and arrogance. And he sent his people into exile because the warnings were not taken to heart and they were allowed to linger over a long amount of time. And the message that he sent to them is the message he sends to us. We also face, we also can encounter that ugly poor woman who's offering us a rose. Will we see what's beyond the veil? What God is up to? To get it, you have to have gotten that everything we've gotten was gotten from God. And everything you'd ever have to give up, you can always know that God's got this. That's what it means to get it, is to know that God's got it. At times, God needs to send us a dream to awaken fears in us, awaken parts of us that maybe we've hidden away or put behind a mask that we've tried to pretend aren't there, but that need to be stirred up. Places in us, in our hearts, where idols can remain. Maybe there's anger. Maybe there's control and obsession. And so God lets us go through those experiences of the beast. Shame. Shame at what we've done. Shame at what we're capable of. And the amazing thing about this whole story is that the shame of the king was an act of redemption. What we would say was the worst part of the story, the part we never want to go through, the, the wild animal out in the wilderness, lost and not even having his senses, was the part of the story that was his redemption. It was the part that finally turned him back. When it says a person hits rock bottom, they never told us how deep that can go before the rock hits. But however deep it needs to be, every one of those experiences is a redemption experience. It's called redemption shame. A humbling experience that we need, that Nebuchadnezzar needed, that Israel needed. The exile, the loss, the being cut down. It's a picture of the cross. The cross is Jesus' redemptive shame which from all outward appearances was horrible. 
They treated him like an animal. But Hebrews 12 said it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross and accepted the shame. There's a time period that goes by seven times. God tells Nebuchadnezzar there's a period of trial where we need to learn. But what does the number seven signify? Seven was the days of creation, which means that seven for us is new creation. It means, yes, there's six days of trial as God recreates us from what we were to what he wants us to know until finally we can have rest again. Until finally Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses and he lifts his eyes to heaven and he blesses the Most High And not only does he praise him, he repeats the same praise he did at the beginning, but he adds a second part. And he says, all the inhabitants of the earth are as nothing before him. He does according to his will among all the gods of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to him, what have you done? It is that final knowledge of faith. One commentary said, A man who thinks himself a god must become like a beast before he can learn what it means to be a man. This Christmas season, let's be honest about the Grinch. Six Grinches in a parade is probably appropriate. Six times over, we can remember the instincts that we all have this time of year to think on this season for all the wrong reasons, for greed or obsession, for lists that we can never get complete, for impressing other people with how we handle the holidays, or for putting on a show when we're really, really sad. And finally, in the end, the Grinch's heart grew three times And then at the end of the parade, we can see not a throne of lies, but the true king sitting on the throne who brings us a gift that will never let us down. Amen.